Lots of things are better together. Hockey, food, golf. How about a cold one on the patio during a nice spring day? But if you really want to take things to the next level, drink some Labatt Blue Lights with your friends and live life to the power of we. Always enjoy responsibly. Beer, Labatt USA, Buffalo, New York. You're listening to DraftKings Network. This is the GM Shuffle. What I thought was the wrong thing and the wrong messaging by Salai was to say that we have to live in the moment, but we're one of the six or eight teams. You're not one of the eight. You haven't been one of the eight in a long time. They haven't been near where the, this organization hasn't even sniffed the playoffs in 12 years. You're listening to the GM Shuffle with Michael Lombardi, presented by DraftKings and VSIN. Here is Femi Abebefe. Welcome to another edition of the GM Shuffle with Michael Lombardi, presented by DraftKings and VSIN. I'm your host, Femi Abebefe. As always, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer, Elliot Bowman, with us on the ones and twos. Michael, looking all spiffy over there in New Jersey, buddy. How well, are you doing today? They told us to dress up. They told us <laughs> they to dress did. up. Brian Rogers <laughs> said, you know, like, you got to get dressed up. Like, I mean, Picture you day. know. <laughs> yeah, picture day. I feel like I'm Dominic getting ready to finish kindergarten, you know? Like, I got to get all dressed up here. It's awesome. Do they still do those kindergarten graduations and stuff? Oh, yeah, they do. That's awesome. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, it's That's awesome. Cool. I got pictures of his, you know, he's even got it. Like, they have a yearbook, believe it or not. Yeah. That's really cool. So, I mean, his little girlfriend, Olivia's probably going to sign his his uh, his yearbook. It's going to make his grandmother completely upset. But other than that, it's all good. <laughs> or he has a girlfriend, man. Dominic, not messing around. They all, yeah, they, yeah. Dominic got girlfriend, can do can do multiplication. Yeah, he's, he's living large. He's doing good. Absolutely love it. No, it's going to be a really, really fun podcast. Later on the podcast, we taped this earlier this week, our interview with the author and the New York best – New York Times bestselling author, I should say, Warren Zanes, who wrote the book on Bruce Springsteen and the making of Nebraska. That's going to be airing a little bit later on in the podcast. Look out for that. It was a really fun interview that we taped earlier this week. Cannot wait for you guys to hear that. Yeah, I'm so overly excited about that that you could just feel it. I I, I feel bad I was cutting you off, Femi. I mean, I feel bad because I was like, I got so many more. And then after we got done, I was like, shoot, I got a ton more to ask this guy. So it was great. No, it's fun. It's a lot about the creative process, too, which is Mm -hmm. I think what we're going to do in in this series is try to grab people that can kind of help as coaches and leaders. You know, that creative process often gets overlooked. Like, how do you – how do you change what you're doing and keep it the same, but do it in a different way where it's kind of creative and find different avenues to explore? So hopefully we can do that. Yeah, it's a part of the leadership and literature series that we're doing. You like that name? I I, I love alliteration. I loved it. Yeah. OK, cool. I loved it. I thought it was great. I mean, our man Elliot's coming up with it. He's doing good. You know, he's yeah. got it. No, we, we got it on lockdown, so look out for that coming up a little bit later on in the podcast. But let's get into the news and notes from around the NFL. And before we get into that, you wrote an article about the NFL mistake that has always made every offseason, it feels like. And it's the one-player-away syndrome. And this pertains to the New York Jets, the player that they acquired this offseason, four-time MVP quarterback Aaron Rodgers. And Robert Sala said earlier this week that the Jets are among six to eight teams with realistic chances of winning the Super Bowl. I mean, I don't know if Robert Sala is an odds maker or what's going on. Maybe he's been checking the odds. But what did you make (laughs) of that? And and what point did you want to kind of bring across there with the article of the one-player-away syndrome? Well, I think, you know, I wrote about this in Football Done Right, that one player away idea has forced some horrendous trades, right? And you go back to the Herschel Walker trade, the Vikings Mm -hmm. thought they were one player away, John Hadle. I mean, the list goes on and on. And 
what 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 I what I thought was the wrong thing and the wrong messaging by Salai was to say that you know we have to live in the moment, but we're one of the six or eight teams. I mean, let, let's put things in perspective here, and and I mean, Jet fans know what I'm going to talk about, right? I mean, they haven't been to the playoffs since 2010. All right, wow. the guy has only won two games in the AFC East. Right. He's got what I think he's got a 10 win. He's won 11 games in, in two years or something like that. You know, they've only been to the playoffs. Think about this, Femi. This organization has only been to the playoffs 13 times since they won the Super Bowl. That's crazy. Like, this isn't this isn't a winning. We understand how to win. We'll get it all back. Like you got to take baby steps. Like it's got to be a little bit like you're not one of the eight. You haven't been one of the eight in a long time. Now, maybe you'll get there. And certainly you have an opportunity because you've improved your team. But let's not lose sight of what has transpired. And this one player away notion is to me, even though he's an elite player, is to me it's he's falling into the trap that Denver fell into last year. Because what happens is, well, we got Russ. We'll let Russ cook. Okay, mm-hmm. Russ can't cook anymore. Okay, we got Aaron Rodgers. We'll just let Aaron be the guy. Well, wait a minute. How about offense? How about defense and special teams and all those things that combine? So for me, I, I thought it was like a ridiculous statement for him to make, especially considering they haven't been near where the, this organization hasn't even sniffed the playoffs in 12 years. So how do you think Tampa was able to pull it off a few years ago in 2020 when they signed Tom Brady and they go from team who misses the playoffs to winning the Super Bowl. Like, like, what can the Jets take from Tampa Bay to try to have a season more like that versus the season we saw a year ago with Denver? Well, I mean, I think that's a great question, and I wrote that in the column. I mean, remember, they're 7-5 and five going into their bye week, mm-hmm. the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and nobody's saying they're going to win a Super Bowl, and then they never lose a game after that. I, I think it's, gonna, it's an evolution. It's going to take some time. I think that's the point. Can it happen? Maybe. Rodgers is a great player. Can he play at the level that he played at uh, when he won the MVP? We shall see. He wasn't a great player last year. Circumstances involved. So I think it's going to take time, and I think you have to prepare your team that there's going to be difficulties along this road. Like the pathway to where we want to go is going to be hard. It's going to be a hell of a lot harder than we even think it's going to be because we're on national TV so much that with the expectation where nobody's taking us lightly. Nobody's going into the game saying, okay, it's the Jets. We can beat them. No, there's, a, there's going to be – everybody's going to bring their A game to the table when they play the Jets. And how do you raise your level? One of the things that always bothers me about offseason is we always talk about how the players have to improve. And the coaches stand in front of the team and say, we have to improve, fellas. We have to improve. You have to improve. But nobody ever talks about how the coaches have to improve. Right. No one ever says, I got to do a better job. Like I got to become a better head coach. You know, if Cleveland's going to get better, Kevin Stefanski's got to become a better head coach. If the Jets are going to get better, Robert Salai's got to become a much better head coach. He's not a head. He's not a very good head coach today. So he's got to improve. And I think to me, that's a huge mistake. I mean, for him to put himself in the six or eight category, it just shows you how naive he is in terms of what it takes to win a championship. Like, he's got to improve his ability to coach all three phases. And now he's putting the target on the players. Mm-hmm. Like, why would you do that? Why do you have to do that? The media is already putting the expectations on you. Why don't you just keep your mouth shut and coach the team? And then in the next sentence, he says, well, we're just going to stay in the moment. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're already talking about the future.
He's already living in December and January, ready to get some playoff victories. It does seem a little strange that he's putting this kind of pressure on the team because, like you mentioned, the the page six is going to do all that. The back pages in New York, the fan yeah. base is going to do all that stuff. Like everybody, we see Rogers making his tour all across Manhattan and all that stuff. Like the hype is clearly there, so there's not there's no need to kind of drum this up because everybody's paying attention to this team and the league is paying attention to them with the way that they scheduled those games early on in the season. So many primetime appearances against big name playoff teams. Like it seems like Robert Sala is making an unnecessary move here to kind of put the microscope even more on the New York Jets. Right, and he's putting it on Rodgers because if everything doesn't yeah. go to plan, well, we have Rodgers. Like you're making it out as if we the the reason we lost last year is because Zach Wilson wasn't good enough. Well, okay, we'll go through all the games and you can watch them, but Zach Wilson wasn't good enough. That's true, but mm-hmm. there are other areas of the team that got let down too. So, like for me as a, as a head coach, your job is to take the pressure off the players, put the pressure on you. We talk about this all the time. Great leaders stand in front of the team when things aren't going well. They stand behind the team when things are going well. So you want to deflect all this off the team. I mean, Rodgers got, what, pulled a calf in the, one of the minicamp days. What happens if he get, pulls a calf and misses eight weeks? Like, are, are you ready? Like, what are you doing now? Well, we, we had Rodgers. Now we're already. Like, to me, this is part of the issue that I think is really a big problem in the NFL is we got these guys who become head coaches, and they're not really head coaches. They don't understand the job at hand. And nor does he understand the history of the organization he took over. Like, Jet fans know it. Like, Jet fans are kind of like 76er fans, like me. You know, when something goes wrong, we're all, okay, it's all going to be, you know, here it comes again. Because they've seen it. When you've only been in the playoffs 13 times since 1968, what does that tell you? Yeah, a lot of battle wounds for for New York Jets fans. Our our buddy Jeff Parles here at VEASAN. He always kind of has that that Jets, uh, here we go again, what what can go wrong will go wrong type of syndrome there. And we'll see if that uh, is alleviated in this 2023 season. I wanted to ask you about a couple of quick notes from the owners' meetings here, Michael, because we saw that the owners adjusted the fair catch rule for kickoffs and safeties in 2023. So the ball will now be put in play at the receiving team's 25-yard line if there is a fair catch on a free kick, a kickoff or a safety, behind the receiving team's 25-yard line. So it's essentially like the college football rule. Well, if you catch it right. inside the 10 or so or in the 15, you can fair catch it and you can get the ball at the 25. Do you agree with that rule and, and what the league is kind of doing, shifting special teams here? No, because I think to me it's, it's now all of a sudden – you know, you're, you're, you're guaranteed to get the ball in the 25. I think one of the most, the, to me, the ridiculous thing is when guys take the ball out of the end zone and they get it to the 12 or the 18, and, you know, and you're saying, like, like, if we just take it, we're going to get it at the 25. Like, just take the ball. So I, I think they're trying to reduce special teams to the point, like Andy Reese said, you know, we're taking the football out of the football. Like, we got to have – it's going to be a contact sport. Is there injuries? Yeah, we're trying to do that. I mean, they changed the kickoff rules to avoid some of the injuries, mm-hmm. but now they're basically saying, okay, just put the ball at the 25. And I think, what, some of the best field position, if you could start a drive at the 25 on a consistent basis, you're probably going to be in the top 12 of the National Football League in terms of field position start point. And this was a, a hotly contested adjustment to the rule because the vote ended up being 26 5 one is what Albert Breer reported on Twitter. said the Ravens, Patriots, Bengals, Bears, and Lions voted against it, and the Raiders abstained. But apparently, prior to that final vote, it was pretty split, and then the commissioner, Roger Goodell, made an impassioned speech, which flipped a ton of the teams over, and they ended up getting it to go ahead and pass through. He, so. 
he would have never called the vote if he didn't have the vote. I mean, remember, mm-hmm. John Mara of the Giants was completely against it. I yeah. didn't hear you say the Giants voted against it. Oh, that was Thursday night football. It was when the Giants were against. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought you were talking about. I thought you were talking about. I thought you were talking about the the uh, the, the Thursday night flex thing. Oh yeah, well, yeah. The Thursday night flex thing. Yeah, the Giants were vehemently opposed to that one. They voted against it as well as a, num- a number of other teams. But hey, now they can make this twenty di- twenty eight day window is what they're going to say for the Thursday night to where they can flex a team into there. I, I think that's just chaotic. Like to be honest, I think it's a little bit of bullshit there that the league is going to go ahead and like you have fans who attend these games and the fact that you're just going to kind of switch things up like that. I mean, I get it. You got to appease Amazon and all that stuff, but like also like the fans are the lifeblood of this thing as well. Aren't they not? Yeah, they really are. But look, I mean, this is what, you know, we know what drives the market, right? We knows what drives the bucket. So you got to do it. They special teams rule, you know, Baltimore votes against it. Special teams coach New England. I mean, they don't want to lose special teams. Yeah, they don't want to lose special teams, but the league is moving in that direction to go ahead and limit concussions and help player safety. But we're also going to be playing two Thursday night games per year. Riddle me that. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a quick break. But on the other side, our interview with Warren Zanes, the offer of Deliver Me From Nowhere, the making of Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska here on the GM Show. The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. I mean, these second-round playoffs have been unreal, and we have the conference finals now on the horizon. Make sure you get all those futures bets in before the value disappears. And if you're new to DraftKings, you got to check this out. New customers bet 5 bucks to get 150 in bonus bets in. Instantly download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code SHUFFLE. That's code SHUFFLE for new customers to get 150 in bonus bets when you bet just 5 bucks. only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please pay responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. You're listening to the GM Shuffle with Michael Lombardi, presented by DraftKings and VSIN. Here is Femi Abebefe. This is really cool, a special treat for us here on the GM Shuffle. Now that we're in the offseason, we wanted to go ahead and start this series since we're doing the two podcasts per week. And we're going to call it the Literature and Leadership Series here, speaking with authors and people in leadership positions to kind of pick their brains on their creative process and how they go about cultivating a culture. And our first guest this offseason is one that is truly, truly going to be a lot of fun here. And he wrote the book on Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska. The book is entitled Deliver Me From Nowhere, The Making of Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska. It was published May 2nd, or it's already out. You can get it wherever you get your books there. But the one and only Warren Zanes joining us here on the GM Shuffle podcast. Warren, we appreciate you joining us, man. Thanks for uh, spending some time here on, on our podcast. It's an honor to be among you. 
<laughs> well, it, it's certainly an honor for me to have you. As you know, being from this great state of New Jersey, when I was I was sitting in Utah uh, and my wife was we were driving back across the country and I happened to stumble across the CBS Sunday morning show on YouTube and I saw you interviewed this and I'm like, how did this happen without me knowing about it? Like, so how did you get Bruce Springsteen to be able to agree to a book and know that this book was this moment in time was so instrumental in his course of a career? Well, uh, yeah, good question. Uh, I had a really strong sense because Nebraska is, it's a strange record. This is Bruce Springsteen's four, I mean, sixth official release. His fifth was The River. The River was his first number one album. It had his first top 10 single, Hungry Heart. When you've just had your first number one album and your first top 10 single, that's exactly the point at which you go bigger. That's the launching pad to superstardom. And what should come next from a music business perspective is born in the USA. And Bruce Springsteen instead put out Nebraska, a record that confused a lot of people. It looked like... uh, almost like self-sabotage from some business perspectives. And I've been obsessed with this record for decades. And I knew that when Springsteen finished it, he said, I think this is my best work. And when I looked at his memoir, Nebraska went by in a few pages. And I really just had this strong feeling of not only do I want to know more, but I think there's more to this story. And that's what I kind of came in the door with. And then it was just a matter of, you know, getting into the Springsteen camp, which was, a, you know, I first reached out to his manager, John Landau, and then did some interviews with John. And then John suggested to Bruce that a conversation would make sense. Well, you, you know, you first, I, Fabi, I got to tell you, oh, he sorry, wrote a yeah. line in this book, the, the beginning of the book. So I bought the audio book and I drove across the country listening to it. And then I, whenever I like a book, I buy the hard copy. But he had a line in here. He said, you know, Springsteen has lived with the joy and burden of people wanting his time. The intimacy of music brings something out in people. He's probably had to scrap off hundreds of us just to stay on schedule. I mean, that describes me. I've been backstage about 20 times and I have never been able to shake his hand. So like to get into his camp is a hard thing to do. Like that's really impossible because there's so many of us, especially from Jersey, who have kind of felt this intimacy to his words and they've infected, they've empowered us. I mean, I don't cross Highway Highway Nine if I don't listen to that song when I'm 14 years old. I don't have this career that I ended up having if it wasn't for him. Yeah, he he matters to a lot of people and on a deep, deep level. So in order to to really get his time, uh, I, I just had to give them a feeling that you know I was here to help listeners know this record better. I mean, I feel what is a good music book? A good music book pulls the listeners closer to that music. And I felt confident that I could do that. And, you know, I come from being a fan myself. I I grew up 
from the second record from you know Wild the Innocent and the E Street Shuffle. You know, we got the first one after the fact. But from that second record forward, we were in. This guy got under our skin, so the music was in us. And I think they, you know, they were willing to to take a shot in, you know, giving me some time. And, you know, my commitment to them was, you know, I'll let you read the manuscript when we get to the end. And, you know, that's when I, you know, Bruce sent me an email and said, I, you know, I like this book. How can I help you? And I said, can you help me get into the house where you recorded it? I got to see that place. And a couple of days later, we were in his 1970 El Camino driving to this ranch house that had rented where he recorded the album sitting on the end of his bed. That's really cool. And that house was what they did the interview with the CBS Sunday morning with the orange carpet and everything there. Like that's the, you can almost see Bruce Springsteen thinking back to those times of like, hey, like we wrote the 15 songs and all that stuff in here. It's a really a cool spot. And you, I, I want to kind of double back to the part where you talked about how getting them to be involved with this because you had played with Bruce Springsteen way back when in 1984 with your band, the Del Fuegos. The Springsteen that you met in 1984 versus the Springsteen that you talk to now in writing this book, how has he changed over that period of time? Well, I think, um, you know, he, he's he's been this rare artist who has shared a lot of his life. You know, he, he always has. Uh, the, the memoir was a peak in all of that. But in the memoir, he talked openly about going through uh, depressive periods. And uh, it was connected, as I read that book, to that period of Nebraska. And, you know, so what is he like? Um, he, he's, he is the guy that he, he gives you in his songs. He is the guy that he gives you in his memoir. And the vulnerability and the openness that we already knew about is what he brought to this project. So it's kind of, you know, there are interviews where you know people don't want to go deep. And then there are interviews where you understand full well that the person is there only because they plan to go deep. And that's what I was getting from him. You know, reading the book, and then last night, my wife and I, we watched the movie Air, and one of the one of the people from Nike was, uh, I don't know if you've seen this yet, but I one did. of the people in Nike, uh, <laughs> it plays right into your book, right? Because he thought Born in the USA was a an American revival song of pride, and yet it was a song about a Vietnam vet not being able to find a job. And you touch on that in your book in terms of how he's ability to craft these characters. I mean, he's sitting there watching Badlands. In, a, in this house in an, at night, and yet he's inspired to write these songs. Did he? And he showed you the books that he wrote them in, too, which he's kept, right? Yeah, no, amazing. The, the one he showed on CBS Sunday Morning had the Snoopy cover, but these are yeah. notebooks that you buy at a CVS, and, you know, there they are with all this gold inside of them. Yeah, no, that's I think it's just cool to be able to look back on those on those on those moments there. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the other part that I thought that as you go through this, I've read this before. 
they, they, they often say songwriters, and you haven't played in a musical band. The songwriters run out of steam or run out. Billy Joel hasn't written a song in how long, right? They just don't can't write anymore. When talking to Springsteen, where did you find that he continues to get this motivation to tell his story? Well, I, I think, um, you know, I, th- I think song, the songwriters and, you know, I'm 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 speculating here, but I think songwriters who have long careers, uh, they're going to the songwriting process to uh, answer their own needs. Like, I don't think he could not write. I think it's been too much a part of the way he inhabits the world. So I have a very strong feeling that Tom, I was going to say, like Tom Petty, Bruce Springsteen is going to always be writing new songs because the art does things for him. Um, I do think it changes for people as they get older. And again, speaking generally, I, I think they come in more of a rush when you're younger and you go to find them more when you're older. But I think Bruce Springsteen still has many songs in him. You know, that's my my sense of him. Do you feel like, you know, Flannery O'Connor has been instrumental in his writing, and if you read a lot of her stuff, it's very dark. Do you feel like that really propelled him to write this Nebraska along with watching Badlands? Yeah, I think Flannery O'Connor was key. Uh, the group... The New York punk group Suicide, I think they were key. He was looking at these cultural artifacts, whether they were short stories or whether it was music or whether it was film, where the stories didn't wrap up in happy endings. The stories didn't wrap up with, you know, redemption. Uh, He was seeing that it's possible to write another kind of song where the hope isn't in the story being told. And yet the act of making it remains hopeful. Which I think yeah, is, I it mean, was, go ahead, story. go ahead. Oh, no, I just wanted to point out like the, the point that you bring up here, Wayne, is that like Warren, when, when you have Springsteen coming from the river and then making that turn to go ahead and do Nebraska instead of going to the born in the USA there, why do you think is it that artists, and I don't know if it's, the proper way to phrase it, like in a state of pain, why do you think that they kind of do some of their best work in that state of pain or, or adversity? Because we talk about with that, with athletes as well, being able to perform and rise to the level when they face adversity. Why do you think artists can do that? Well, I, I mean, I think in times of joy and in times of pain, the faucet is just running a little stronger. Um, you know, like when someone's in love, you're probably going to get a little more than usual in the way of songs. And when they're in pain trying to find their way out, if they're a songwriter, the same thing is going to happen. It's the tricky part is that mundane middle. <laughs> That's where sometimes people have to fight for their songs more. But I think as w- you know, with most any art form, there's a healing element, you know, and, and I, I think when you're in love, you want to celebrate it. But when you're in pain, there's this human drive to heal. And 
art has always played a role in that capacity and in, in helping people who feel lost to find their way. The unusual thing about Nebraska, though, is I feel like Bruce, and he details this in his memoir, was at a real crossroads. He was really facing some troubles. He was grappling with ultimately childhood trauma. And many people, when they're in the toughest places, they stop producing. They really have to go uh, into almost like um, you know, intensive care mode. And then they write about it afterwards. The amazing thing about Bruce is that he, he writes Nebraska and much of Born in the USA from a place where he's really in a kind of trouble. So as a document, to me, Nebraska is a rare document. I don't think you see too many artists kind of speaking from the depths. And that always yeah. th that always yeah. intrigued me. And that's where I say the songs themselves may not be hopeful. But when I was young and I was, you know, I was going into my senior year when I got that, mm -hmm. I identified with those characters. And in identifying with the characters, these desperate characters, these people without hope, in identifying with them, I felt less alone. So that yeah, to me is a kind of testament to the fact that if a song is hopeless, that doesn't mean that the act of creating it and giving it to other people is hopeless because that record did something for me. And if it hadn't happened that way, I don't think I would have written a book about it. Yeah. It, it, I, I agree. I, I've just finished another book called Belonging by Owen Eastwood, and it's about it's about how we all have this eccentric need to become part of a tribe. And as I'm reading this book, I felt like Springsteen was had the, his background of being dirt poor and freehold, the, the shackled grandparents' house that was breaking down, and then he moves in with his grandma, uh, his other side. And his kind of, I don't want to call it shame, but his kind of like looking back and then realizing how popular he become through all his success. Right. And so to me, he was searching for a sense of belonging and he didn't know where to find it. And we all do that. We all don't have that. You know, we all want to belong and yet we don't have a way to belong. Yeah. And, and I, you know, honestly, uh, sometimes I, uh, you know, when I when I deal with people who have had these big lives, the big arc going from, you know, a poor working class background to superstardom, I'll look and 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 I'll say to my sons, our our life is just right at the size it is like, I don't think uh, any of us could handle that comfortably or in a healthy way. Uh, so when I look at, at people like. Springsteen, who he's done it with such awareness. Uh, he's fought for his piece um, and he's kept making art the whole way along. I, I find it really moving. And I think it's one of the reasons, you know, he's over in Europe right now playing to stadiums. And I think one of the reasons that's happening is that he's shared his trajectory with us. He's shared his story. And like you said at the beginning, 
it's incredibly empowering to people. Yeah, yeah. I, I want you to share this story. I want you to share the story. I found this story. I never heard this story until I read your book. I want you to share the story about him being in the movie theater in St. Louis. I, I don't know, and you've been around big time rock and rollers. I don't know anybody who would have done what he did. Yeah, hundred percent agreed. So he's he's got a night off on the river tour, and he goes out to see a Woody Allen movie. And he's getting his popcorn and a Springsteen fan looks over and it's like, Bruce Springsteen is at our movie theater. And what am I supposed to do? Leave him alone? I can't. And so this fan says, would you come sit with us? And Bruce sits between this fan and the fan's sister and they watch the Woody Allen movie together. And then at the end, Bruce is going to call a cab to go home. And uh, the, the fan says, we'll drive you. Uh, but do you mind if we stop off so you can meet my parents? <laughs> and uh, they, they, they all go. Bruce meets the parents. And, and this guy, Steve Satinovsky, plays a Springsteen tape, a live tape on the way to the house and is singing along with it with Bruce in the car. So it's this, you know, so many people would jump out of that car and run for the hills. And instead, you know, there's this, I look at it as an expression of, of like earnest, heartfelt curiosity that Springsteen had about the people he's singing for. And he took, took that opportunity to go not just know, get to know this brother and sister, but to go meet the parents. Uh, you know, he had some watermelon with them. You know, he, he like saw it through. And I totally agree with you. I love including that story because who does that? Who does that? And I don't think he did it so that when he walked out that family's door, they all went, gee, he's the greatest guy in the world. I think that was inevitable. I think he did it because he wanted to know more about the people he was singing to. And that is why Bruce is Bruce. Yeah. What was the most surprising thing you learned about Springsteen during this project? And the whole project started with a surprise. Uh, I mean, it's, it's that an artist at his level, having had that number one album, would make a record like this. I came in surprised. I, I loved him for that. I loved him for the defiance that Nebraska embodied. You know, so I came in surprised, uh, but along the course of it, in getting my answer for why would someone do this, I, I don't know if I'd call it a surprise, but sitting with Bruce Springsteen and having him ready to go as deep in this story as I needed to was not so much surprising as just deeply moving. You know, I'm in the course of an interview and I'm realizing this guy's going to go wherever I need him to go as a writer. Like I don't have to be guarded. I don't have to be careful. If he doesn't have an answer for something, he's going to tell me. If it's something he doesn't want to talk about, he'll tell me. But he didn't say that he didn't want to talk about anything. 
he just had this kind of like, let's go into this as far into the forest of it all as we can, and I'll walk with you, Warren. And if I don't have an answer, I'll come back with a question and let's see what we find. You know, that spirit in an interview is, I've never seen anything like it. The creativity that it involves. I mean, he's searching. I mean, when you were discussing Homer's Odyssey to him and how it related to Nebraska, I thought the greatest part of the book, and there's a thousand great parts of the book, and is when he let you become the therapist and you explained why you were drawing this analogy to him. And then you looked for him and he said, go on. Meaning that he was embracing what you were saying. I mean, that was powerful to me as a writer because you captured what he was looking for. It, it was, uh, you know, I, for me, it's the centerpiece of the book uh, in the sense of it exposes that he's got this emotional, intellectual curiosity, uh, but he also got this generosity because what I was doing was saying, I think there's a connection between the story of Odysseus and the story of you going from Nebraska to born in the USA. And would you let me try this out on you? And that's no longer an interview. And, you know, the, the short version of the story is like to really become the man that he wanted to be. To recover his home, his marriage, his relationship with his a child, Odysseus returns after 20 years to Ithaca, where he lives. And his home is filled with these men who want to marry his wife. His son doesn't know what he looks like. And he returns to his home as a beggar. Seen by any of them. And that's the position from which Odysseus kind of really becomes the hero that he needs to be, to be in that marriage, to be a father to his son, to recover his home. Uh, but he starts from anonymity as a beggar, nobody. And that story has always moved me so much. And I just looked at Nebraska and I went, that's Bruce Springsteen being nobody. He's not on the cover. There's no glossy veneer on the music. There's no redemption. There's no band. He's stripped everything off until it's just the grunt of art. That's as anonymous as a rock star could possibly be. And then he goes from that to born in the USA. And I was just in my research, I'm looking at that, that one album to the next course of events. And I just, I was obsessed with it, mapping onto the story of Odysseus. And so Springsteen gave me that moment to test my theory. And when he said, in the middle of the story of Odysseus said, go on, it was like, I mean, I could, you know, when I think about it, it chokes me up because I don't know if I'll ever be in a situation like that again where I'm mainlining generosity from an artist I admire so much. But he says, go on, and it's like, I did it. And 
And then he like finished the story. You know, he was like, I just wanted to be invisible. And it was like just powerful. You know, I, I, nothing I will soon forget. Wow. No, that's the word that keeps coming up in my mind as you are explaining this process to me is brave. Uh, I mean, Bruce Springsteen, brave to go and take that turn after the river instead of doing the big commercial thing, brave to be able to open up to you because, you know, it's like you mentioned, most artists or most people who are public figures, they kind of give the canned response or they don't really want to kind of be vulnerable in those moments. But he was transparent with you. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but like bravery is kind of what is really what jumps out to me, at least him being willing to to open that up and have people accept him for who he is. Yeah. You know, one of the artists that I interviewed about Nebraska and how it affected him was the British artist Richard Thompson. And Richard Thompson used, uh, you know, a synonymous word, courageous, uh, which I think shares a lot with bravery. And, you know, I agree. Like, so when I came in with my question, it was like, why would someone do this? And I knew, I just, my gut was like underneath the story of what looked like a terrible career decision was a story of artistic and personal bravery. Yeah. I, I mean, when you read belonging and Eastwood's connection that if we're not aware of our past allows our future to be present, uh, I think you get that. And, and, and when I sat there and listened to when I read this book and your book, it, it kind of worked together. I was when I went back and I've watched the Howard Stern interview about 70 times. But there's one moment in the Stern interview where Stern asked him, says, what's your routine like? And then for some reason, Howard kind of talked over him. and We never found out what is from a creative. What is his routine like when he is in Colts Neck on the on the uh, horse farm? I don't know. I, mean, I want to find out. <laughs> yeah, there's, send you know, me that email, please. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, I was actually just writing an article for the magazine Mojo about this. And when I did my interviews with Bruce, one thing that became clear was he wasn't going to tell me it was over. He wasn't going to say, you can leave now, Warren. He was going to, I was in charge of that. And the problem was, I always have more questions. You know, I'm like yeah. you. I'm, I'm a Bruce Springsteen fan. I, there, there's always, I mean, I didn't bring a sleeping bag. Uh, but if I had stayed until the last question was there, I would need at least a sleeping bag. You know, it would take many days. Uh, but, I, but I said, you know, I, I think I got what, what I need. And I really reluctantly left. But... Your question is a great one, and, I, and I'm sure you got 100 more, and I've got 100 more. But that's the kind yeah. of artist we're talking about. Yeah, I, I almost feel like, you know, I don't – I'm obviously a fan, but to me – because of the connection, because of what he's been able, and I'm sure he hears this from a thousand people, millions of people probably, that are like me, that, that used his music as a vehicle to launch their own interest in something that they were passionate about. And so for me, I, I, I kind of push the, 
that away, I you know, I, I feel like there's a, a closerness to me than just calling me a fan because when I go to the concerts and I was in Florence the last time I saw them and and uh, I'm singing and, and my wife's like, you know, nobody here wanted to hear you sing. Like all these Italians want to hear him sing. So like, but there's that bond that you have to them, you know, and when I go see them uh, this tour, it's going to be the same thing. So I, I don't know how to explain it. You know, it's just there's certain people that fuel your creative process and i don't know how he does it but to me he that's what to me I, he's more of a creative thought thought and work habits because his work habits really warren are incredible yeah yeah but but i i agree that like my best experiences with art make me want to go and make some art they they, yeah. they compel me to go do something and uh, I think rather than just sit and bask in the glow of something that a person has created, I want to respond by going and creating something. And I've had many experiences listening to Bruce Springsteen's music where I just I got to go pick up my guitar. Like I got to take a crack at it or I got to go get a notebook out and write something. And I agree with you. Like that's the best outcome of art is more art. And I think a lot of people connect with him in that way. I, I, I wanted to just because I know, you know, one of your themes here is, is teams, team building. And I, I also, th there's a crucial piece in this book about Nebraska is that I also see a team leader, band leader, who's making a choice to do something without that band so that he can come back and be better at leading that band. You know, I don't think it's about, uh, I'm gonna do some with the band or some without the band. I think the best band leaders, and he talks about this a little, the best band leaders know when to do things without that band. And their view is not on that singular project they're doing by themselves. It's about the longer view of things, you know. And sometimes, like, the, you, the nutrients you need to do a collective project are the nutrients that you get by going and doing something without that collective. And I think this is, this carries from, you know, from music to sports to families and to relationships, uh, you know, to intimate relationships. You, know, you look at, at successful marriages and you're gonna look at people who knew when they needed to be alone rather than being enmeshed. And that's probably the marriage that's gonna go for decades. You know, same with like, you know, I'm gonna be an empty nester next year. I gotta let my kids go. I do not want yeah. to. Yeah, but yeah, what's going to make this family hard, the healthiest me. family? Yeah, yeah. But we're going to be the best family because I let them go do this stuff on their own. There's Springsteen, known for being one of the great band leaders in American music history. And he's choosing to do something by himself. And he comes out the other side and he makes this band record, Born in the USA. Like, I see something to learn from that. Mm. Yeah. No question. You, and, you know, the thing I think we learned from it is uh, we have a saying, you know, I talk about this all the time. Leaders do the right thing. 
managers do things right. And Springsteen did the right thing. And only he knew the right thing to do. Only he heard it, you know. And I think to me that that takes a lot of moral courage to do it because oftentimes the perception and we're now this is we didn't have Twitter or Instagram then, but the outside forces the record producers, you know, we don't want this. I thought it was a marvelous story about Columbia who could have easily said, this is crap. You know, now they couldn't have done it legally, but you know, we're not putting this out. This isn't like the river. And yet they embraced it for the ability to allow him to find himself. Yeah. I mean, it's harder now, but they still knew what a long career artist looked like. You know, long careers are more rare. We've got Beyonce, we've got Taylor Swift, but at a certain point, like in the late 70s, we had more long career artists. That's what Springsteen has always been. And, you know, he knew it himself. I think John Landau, his manager, is is, is exactly the right manager for him because he knew that Bruce needed to do something and he wasn't pressuring him to make Born in the USA now. And then the record label, uh, I'm sure they were, you know, kind of grinding their teeth on this one. But, you know, Al Teller in particular at Columbia saw something an artist needed to do and trusted that it would lead to something bigger. To me, this Nebraska feels like such a pivot point in Springsteen's life and in his career. Do you think there would ever be a movie made about Nebraska? <laughs> it's, um, you know, like I, I've gotten emails already uh, asking about this. Um, and to me, it's got everything. What I love about it is as it as a story, it's this, you know, when people think pop music, they think lights they think glitz. Uh, this is so humble. This is so solitary. This is someone uh, exposing through art a kind of personal crisis. It's the antithesis of so many, you know, musical biopics. Uh, so I think it could be an incredible story. And it's and really the hero's journey maps onto this so well. And I think. Culturally, we feed on hero's journey stories. So, yeah, uh, yeah, I think Timothy Chalamet. I agree, he's the perfect actor to play the role. <laughs> the last question before we let you go. We appreciate your time, Warren. This has been tremendous for me. But how in the hell? What did that owner of the Colts Neck House feel like when he saw Bruce Springsteen walking in and seeing the same house? I mean, that guy's like that guy had to be like, holy shit, how did this happen? Uh, he is he's a great character. Um, and I, I won't use his name so that he doesn't get too many people coming to his door. But, you know, it's amazing. Here's a guy who he rented it to Bruce originally. Uh, he's still renting it out now. And I think, look, the, it's a ranch house and they did a lot of work on it. They added a second story. They increased the footprint. But he left the bedroom where Nebraska <laughs> was recorded almost exactly like it was. Now, 
There's a guy who understands that something historical happened in that spot. You know, seeing those orange shag rugs, I was like moved. It was moved. Let me tell you, when I was, um, after I'd been in a rock band, I followed the pilgrimage from uh, to Santiago de Compostela in Spain. By bicycle, I went from Paris, across France, across the top of Spain. And when you get to the cathedral in Compostela, there's a marble column at the, at the front of the nave. And for a thousand years, pilgrims put their hands on that column. And there's like an indentation from hands that goes an inch into that marble because so many hands have touched it. Now, when I walked into the room where Nebraska was recorded, I got the same damn feeling I got when I walked into that cathedral, like something happened here that matters to me. And I was, I couldn't, I didn't have language there for a few seconds. You know, it was like, it was heavy and it was beautiful. And, you know, Bruce, I feel sensitive enough to know, like, let me get this guy to the end of the pilgrimage. Wow. Wow. Awesome. And that's, Bruce made you take a picture of him. That's what I love, too. Bruce wanted a picture of him in the room. I love it. Like a regular guy would. He wanted a selfie in the room. <laughs> uh, uh, such a great moment. No, that that's really cool. And Warren, once again, we appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. I mean, this we could have awesome. gone another 35, 45 minutes, maybe even an hour. Oh. But this was really cool. And it's awesome. So that what you're able to do. Yes. No, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm glad it was fun well. for you as well. Thank you, Warren. And I have to send you my book because I have a, a bookcase of autographed books that I keep. I don't have jerseys from football teams. I have books. So I'm going to you got to send me your address so I could send you a copy of the book so I can get it signed. And I would appreciate it. Oh, 100 percent. I'm on it. That's awesome. <laughs> so once again, the book Thanks, is Warren. Deliver Me From Nowhere, The Making of Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska, written by the one and only Warren Zanes, New York Times bestselling author. Warren, we appreciate the time, and hopefully we'll talk to you in the future, but best of luck going forward. This was a lot of fun. And that does it for this edition of the podcast. It was a really cool podcast to do, a part of our literature and leadership series here on the GM Shuffle. As always, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Michael, thank you to you. Thank you for setting this up. Elliot, our producer, with us on the ones and twos, as always, killing it, as always. It was an awesome podcast. Hope you guys all enjoyed it. Thank you.